welcome to Able to Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Thomas J. McSweeney, Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School. We will discuss his book, Priests of the Law, Roman Law and the Making of the Common Law's First Professionals, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Thomas. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, no, the pleasure's all mine. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, it's the period of English legal history I'm, I'm especially interested in. And I really find your book uh, remarkably uh, approachable for a subject that a lot of people will consider pretty esoteric. So uh, congrats on, on, on getting it published. Thanks. That's, that's actually one of the things I aim for in my writing is to make this period of the common law's history more accessible, uh, because I think that um, it's it's a difficult period. It's it's often a difficult period to access. It's so different from the way the common law operates today, for instance. Well, so in light of that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the English legal system uh, during the period of time that you're studying, because I know the system changed a lot over different periods. You're looking at a very particular kind of point in history, and I think a lot of people might not fully understand sort of what the English uh, judicial system and legal system looked looked like at that point in time. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's a period of rapid change. So, so I'm looking really at the period between about the 1220s and the 1250s in the book and a particular group of justices who are working in the English royal courts. Um, and this is really kind of, when you think about the 1220s to the 1250s, you're, you're kind of looking at the second to third generation of people who are working in the English royal courts in this period, or the courts, the courts of what we think of as the courts of the common law. Um, we generally date kind of the genesis of the common law to the reign of Henry II. Uh, so in the, the second half of the 12th century, and you really get, you get a lot of legal reform in the 1160s, 1170s, 1180s. And uh, Henry II and his advisors established things that will become hallmarks of the common law uh, in later centuries. So trial by jury, uh, the system of writs, where uh, in order to initiate litigation in the royal courts, you go to chancery and you get a writ, which is an order, uh, usually to the sheriff, to gather a jury or something like that. It, it depends. It depends on the writ. But you get you go and get this writ, and that sort of initiates the litigation in the royal courts. Um, and they establish kind of a system of courts, which is itself changing during this period. Uh, that become kind of the main courts of the common law uh, in the late 12th century, early 13th century. Um, so by the time you get to 1250, you kind of have uh, a, a system of courts that's recognizable in later centuries. You have a court that's, that's usually just known as the bench or the common bench. That becomes the Court of Common Pleas, uh, which lasts for centuries. You have a court called the Court Coram Regae, the court before the king, uh, which becomes the king's bench. Uh, and then you have the air courts, where justices travel around the country and, uh, and hear cases um, and do other things, too. They sort of look up on the or check in on the king's uh, the, um, you know, royal administrators and things like that. They, they look into royal rights. Um, 
And the judiciary is actually changing quite a bit in this period. So the justices I'm, I'm looking at in this book um, are part, they're kind of a new type of justice. Uh, by the 1220s, you start to see people who are professional justices and professional in the sense that they're spending pretty much uh, their entire careers working in the royal courts and they're spending pretty much all of their time at any given point in their careers working in the royal courts. Uh, that's not true of earlier generations of justices. So if you look at a justice of, say, the 1180s, uh, that person is usually going to be uh, someone who works in some other part of the royal administration or uh, sort of an important person in the realm, like a, a bishop or an abbot or an earl, who is appointed to sit in the royal courts every once in a while. So uh, they, they do this as one facet of their work for the king, but they're, they're not working in the courts all the time. Whereas you get somebody like William of Raleigh, who's one of the central figures in the book. He's, he's probably the primary author of, of the Bracton Treatise. Uh, William of Raleigh uh, spends about 15 years as a clerk in the royal courts before he becomes a justice himself and then spends... Um, uh, about a decade as a justice. So he spends most of his career working as either a clerk or a justice in the royal courts and really starts to specialize in this kind of work. Mm. Well, you note in your book that there were really kind of three different bodies of law that were salient in different ways to the English courts and, and judiciary at that point in time. I wonder if you could identify what those bodies of law are and how they differed from each other. So, so in the book, I, I talk about um, the relationship between, um, I would probably think of it more as, as two bodies of law in a way. Um, so there's common law on the one hand, and then, uh, then you have Roman law, or sometimes referred to just as civil law, and canon law on the other. And I uh, Roman law and canon law are are different are separate from each other. Um, canon law is the law of the church; it's it's practiced in the ecclesiastical courts in England. Uh, Roman law is is not really practiced in in any court in England, but it's taught in England and it's taught throughout Europe uh, in in this period. So if you if you went to a university to learn law in the 13th century, you were learning either Roman or canon law. Uh, England's universities actually didn't teach common law until the 18th century. Uh, you, if you were going to a university in England, you were going to a university to learn law, you were going to learn Roman or canon law. And uh, so you have those, those two laws on the one hand, Roman and canon law, which in some ways are perceived, uh, they're at least perceived by some people as the universal laws of, of Latin Christendom. Uh, so that, that part of Europe that, that recognizes the Pope, uh, basically. Um, people sort of see canon law as the law of the of the uh, priestly sphere or the the ecclesiastical sphere, and and Roman law as the as the law of the secular sphere. Um, and then you have you have common law, and I think common law in this period is interesting because um, people. It's not clear that people really think of common law as a discrete thing yet in the first half of the 13th century. Um, 
I, I have a section in the book where I, titled "Before the uh, Before the Common Law Was the Common Law." Um, they don't really have they haven't settled on a conventional name for the common law or for what's what's going on in the in the royal courts in the uh, first half of the 13th century. Common law is used occasionally as a term for the the type of law administered by the by the central royal courts in England. Um, but you also you get other terms like the law of the land, the law of the realm, the laws and customs of England. They really settle on common law in the second half of the 13th century. So it's it's not entirely clear that that you know the common law is, is actually thought of as a discrete thing yet. Um, in in the first half of the 13th century, in fact, in the book, I I tend to use um, the work of the king's courts uh, instead of calling it the common law because I don't want to essentialize common law too much. Um, but you do have an interesting relationship between those bodies of law in the first half of the 13th century. So like I said, there are a lot of people who perceive uh, Roman and canon laws as universal laws in the, in the 13th century. One of the, one of the major questions of the early history of the common law is how much influence Roman and canon law exerted on the early common law. And um, it's an important question because Roman and canon law are usually perceived as the ancestors of modern civil law systems. Uh, and there are big questions about the relationship between common law and civil law. Is common law a wholly insular production? You know, is it completely separate from what's going on in continental Europe? These are some questions that people have, have asked, particularly with Brexit and things like that is common law incompatible with civil law, for instance. And so some historians have gone back and, and looked for influence from Roman and, and canon law, which were perceived as universal laws, at least by some people, on common law. And um, often, I think, in that scholarship, you get sort of an overly essentialized Roman and canon law and an overly essentialized common law. People speak as if the systems themselves are the actors, these legal systems are the actors, so that you get Roman law exerting some kind of influence on common law. What I try to do in the book is make the people the actors, to think, think in terms of the people as the actors, and how they would have per, think about how they would have perceived the work of the royal courts, what we would call a common law. What, what did they think they were doing in the royal courts? And what did they think the relationship between that work and Roman, Roman and canon law was? So I, I sort of move from that point and, and look at, okay, so what, what was, how did they perceive Roman and canon law? What was Roman and canon law to them? Was it a body of rules and doctrines? I think in part it, it was. That's one way that they thought about Roman and canon law. But I think they also thought about it as I, uh, in terms of particular types of texts, right? It was it was contained in particular types of texts, that it was a body of practices, that there were certain types of practices that were hallmarks of Roman and canon law, and that those sorts of things, the practices, the texts, also exert influence on common law, not just the rules and doctrines. So as you've mentioned earlier in the book, you focus on a series of related 
documents, which almost seem like kind of early scholarship on the common law, like kind of Bracton and related texts. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what the texts were, sort of the nature of the texts themselves, who created them and what they created them for. So Bracton is a treatise uh, that's written between about the 1220s and the 1250s by this group of justices working in the English royal courts. Uh, justices seem to pass it off to their clerks at every generation. So you, you have multiple generations of people working on this treatise. It's huge. It's about 1,200 pages in its, uh, in its printed edition, the modern printed edition. It's written in Latin. And it's modeled on a Roman law summa. So Roman law and canon law had their own scholarly traditions in the Middle Ages. There were people producing treatises on uh, Roman and canon law. Uh, Bracton is modeled uh, on one treatise in particular, a uh, summa written on Justinian's Institutes by a guy named Azzo of Bologna, who was like the rock star jurist of the early 13th century. He was the guy everybody knew. Um, he was writing in Bologna in Italy, which is sort of the center of Roman legal studies. And so you get this group of justices in the royal court spending, working on this treatise in their, in their spare time. Uh, one, of the, one of the authors says, I worked on this long into the night watches. Uh, that's what they're doing with their time. They're working on this massive treatise uh, that's that's modeled on on Roman law texts, and Bracton's really interesting. It's the the text itself is modeled on Roman law examples, uh, you know, Roman law Roman law texts. It also um, the authors make these these sort of wild attempts to reconcile what they're doing in the king's courts with Roman law to show that the early common law is really just one kind of constituent part of a broader Roman law culture. So you get these, um, these claims in the treatise, like, you know, look, the assize of novel decision that we use in the English courts, it's just like the Roman interdict undevi, they're the same procedure. Or our law of nuisance is really just the Roman law of servitudes, that sort of thing, where they're trying to reconcile, reconcile the two systems and show that common law really is just one, it, it's, it's a type of Roman law in a way. Um, they run into problems when the systems conflict with each other. Uh, and so they have to do some really clever things to, say, make the uh, English writs having to do with land conform to the Roman law of ownership and possession. Like that, that's actually very hard to do. And they, they work very hard at this and come up with some kind of you know, contradictory systems for trying to reconcile those things. So it's a treatise on the common law written in the style of a Roman law summa that tries to reconcile Roman, uh, tries to reconcile uh, uh, the common law with Roman and canon law. Yeah. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like reading your book, I got the impression that sort of the more conventional approach is to look for influences of Roman law on the sort of codification of common law on the level of doctrine and to see the extent to which one is kind of directly translated into the other. And it seemed almost like you were suggesting that maybe the more fundamental influence of Roman law on common law was at the level of kind of jurisprudence and the conceptualization of the justification and nature of law. I, I think that's right. Um, that 
I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of the scholarship, uh, and it's very good scholarship, but there's, there's been a lot of scholarship trying to show Roman and canon law influence on, on common law. And, and um, a lot of it does focus on, you know, sort of codification of certain rules, you know, adoption of certain rules or doctrines or procedures from uh, Roman and canon law into the common law. And yeah, I, I, in the in the book, I'm I'm saying I, I think um, that that we find we find influence of a more fundamental type in something like Bracton, uh, where I'm not sure it's a, it's entirely jurisprudential. I mean, some of it is actually it, it is you, you do have some think thought about what law is, what a legal system is, and that sort of thing. But I think in a lot of ways, what Bracton is about is um, it's a text where these justices are trying to think through what does it mean to be a legal professional? Uh, since they were some of the first people to work with law full time in England, uh, you have a profession of, of, uh, of lawyers, um, courtroom advocates developing around the same time. But, uh, but these guys professionalize a little bit earlier. And I think they're trying to find a place for themselves in the realm. They're trying to figure out where they fit into the social order. And Roman and canon law kind of provide them with a model for that. Um, so I, they start, Roman and canon law have the image of the, of the jurist. You, know, you have the jurist who's sort of the hero of Roman and canon law. And jurists are, are um, characterized as people who write particular types of texts. And I, so I think what, what they're trying to do in a way is, is write themselves, you know, they're trying to emulate jurists in, in these sorts of writing practices, the writing practices that they find in Roman and canon law. Mm. Well, who do you think they were writing for? And how are these texts used both at the time they were initially created and in subsequent years as they became kind of increasingly kind of iconic examples of early common law legal thinking. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting that one of the arguments I make in the book is that Bracton, when, when, the, when these justices are writing Bracton, their idea of, of who the, the ideal reader for Bracton is, it's a very narrow, they've, they've got this very narrow concept of their audience that it really is justices and clerks of the royal courts. Uh, they address justices and clerks of the royal courts directly. They um, talk a lot about the kinds of things that justices and clerks do. So they talk about how you make an enrollment on the plea rolls, which are the records of the royal courts. That's something that, that a, a clerk would do. You would never know from reading Bracton that professional lawyers existed. I, they, they were around. They were pleading in the, in the royal courts. Professionals are semi-professionals at this point. Um, but they're just not present. They're never addressed in the text. So I think, I, I think the, the authors of Bracton had a very narrow idea of who counted, essentially, that um, it's a group of a couple dozen people, basically, that they're, they're writing for. The text doesn't seem to circulate very widely until after the death of the last of the authors to work on it, um, Henry of Bratton. Um, the people, it, it does seem to circulate a little bit, but mainly to justices and clerks of, of the royal courts. It doesn't really take off until the 1280s or the 1290s. We have about 50 manuscripts of Bracton today. 
uh, and they all date to about 1280s, 1290s, early 14th century. And that's actually something that's very hard to explain um, because um, by the 1280s or 1290s, there had been so much change. We don't think of the Middle Ages as a time when things changed a lot, but actually there was, there was a lot of really rapid change in the English legal system in the 13th century. The um, late 13th century is the age of the great statutes. And so these statutes change a lot of the rules in the 1270s, 1280s, 1290s. So if you're copying Bracton in the 1280s, this text that's been a lot of a lot of the text was written in the 1230s. It was edited up until about the 1250s. There's a lot of stuff in there that would be out of date. So it it could be a good introduction to you know how the king's courts work, but I think it's just as likely to mislead you as it is to uh, as as it is to kind of illumine you know how how the royal courts work. So. Um, in a way, it's actually kind of surprising that it, it sees that renaissance at the end of the 13th century. Um, that's something that I'm kind of working on in, uh, in, a, in a second project. I'm working on some of the later history of the common law. Uh, I think that there might have been, um, there, there might have been a sort of intellectual reaction at the end of the 13th century that people, there might have been people working in the royal courts who wanted to kind of kind of assert the common law's position as a learned discipline uh, and that you know, writing large, systematic Latin language treatises about the common law might have been one way to do that. Um, some people write epitomes of Bracton, so they, they basically edit Bracton in the 12, uh, 1280s or 1290s. Um, so it seems like there's interest, there's interest particularly in Bracton uh, around that time. And I think there might, might be something like that going on later in the century. Well, and in the book, you also point to some related texts created by the same or similar group of, of authors, uh, especially like collections, as I took it, like collections of decisions and so on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those, why you think they were created and what their relationship was to the primary text, especially uh, in relation to sort of the kind of thinking more systematically about the common law through the lens of Roman law. Sure. Yeah. So, so I mentioned I, I, I think that these justices are trying to emulate jurists of, of Roman law uh, primarily. And so they think of jurists as people who create particular types of texts, right? Jurists are people who are characterized by the types of writing that they do. And Bracton is the most obvious example of these, these justices in the royal courts trying to be like jurists. Right? They're Creating, they're creating a text that's modeled on on Roman law sumai these these texts that are coming out of Bologna and they're they're actually modeling it on one in particular by the most famous jurist of the time. Um, but Bracton's only the, the most obvious example of that. I think I think if you look at the the other writings of these justices, you it it all kind of comes together that you have uh, a lot of attempts to kind of emulate jurists in the sorts of writing practices um, of, the, of the justices. So there's a text called Bracton's Notebook. Uh, it survives. It's in the British Library. 
uh, contains a lot of the cases that are cited to in Bracton, actually. It contains, so it's copies of cases, these, these records of cases that are copied from the royal court's administrative records, the plea rolls. And um, Bracton's notebook doesn't tell us why it was made. There's, there's, not, there's no introduction to it or anything like that. It's just copies of cases from the records of the royal courts. Um, but if you read Bracton's notebook together with Bracton, I think you get a better picture of what they were aiming for when they were copying these cases, because Bracton actually cites to a lot of cases from the plea rules. And it does interesting things with them. So you'll find these strings of citations where there will be some citations to cases on the plea rules and some citations to provisions of Roman, Roman or canon law. So you have a citation to Justinian's Digest, which is a collection of um, it's a, it's sort of one of the foundational texts of Roman law that would have been studied in the universities in the, in the 13th century, cited in court um, all the time uh, in places where Roman law was, was, considered, was considered good law. Um, and um, Justinian's Digest collects the sayings of Roman jurists of the classical period. You'll have these citations to the Digest next to citations from cases uh, that were decided in the royal court. So we'll cite to a plea roll. Um, it'll actually tell you often where on the roll to find this case. So they're kind of treating the sayings of Roman jurists and decisions of the royal courts as part of the same universe of texts, right? That these texts that we produce in the royal courts are in some way similar to or equivalent to the texts of Roman law that we study in the schools. And so I think, I think this is a way of basically saying, like, look, those are texts produced by jurists, right? These texts that we produce on the royal courts are similar to those. It's a way of kind of channeling the jurist. You know, when they, they're, they're taking the, the writing practices of the royal courts, the types of texts they are already producing as, uh, as justices and clerks in the royal courts and assimilating those to types of texts that they learned about in the schools to try to make themselves into jurists. Mm. Well, so I wonder, like, how persistent do you think the kind of influence of Roman law or maybe just like Romanized legal thinking was on the development of the common law after the period that you describe? Um, I mean, do you think that later justices were or jurists were thinking English jurists were thinking about the common law through the same lens, or maybe even just sort of incorporating some of that unconsciously through their interest in Bracton or or maybe something else entirely? So I think in some ways Bracton ends up being a little bit of a dead end, right? That um that I this, this sort of learned Romanist uh, vision of, of, um, of the common law doesn't really take off in the next generation. The sorts of treatises that we see written in the later 13th century um, don't, don't have the same kind, we don't see the same kind of commitment to Roman law and Roman legal forms that we see in Bracton. But I'm not sure it's a complete dead end. I mean, for one thing, um, Bracton does seem to influence the later literature of the common law. I have argued in, in, uh, in an article that some of the treatises that we um, see um, written in the 1260s 
actually riff off of Bracton in some important ways. They they don't Roman law is definitely not as central to those treatises. But I do think that there are probably some subtle ways in in which this culture actually does sort of hang on um, uh, in uh, or the some ways in which the Bracton culture sort of influences um, later thinking about the common law. Um, these justices who wrote Bracton definitely put the royal justice, right, the judge at the center as sort of the, the they were the movers and shakers of the common law. And, and that definitely, um, that's definitely a theme in common law history. Uh, there are certainly other things that contribute to that, that emphasis on the judge as, as sort of uh, being at the center of the common law. But, um, but it could be one, one bit of continuity that we see, uh, that we see from, from this culture in the 13th century. Well, Thomas, uh, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little on how you hope this book affects the way that scholars think about the early history of the common law, both during the period you're discussing specifically and more generally. Yeah. Um, so in terms of thinking about, uh, well, thinking about this period, I, I kind of hope that it, it, um, opens up new conversations about the relationship between common law and, and civil law in the early period, because I think those conversations have been so heavily focused on the adoption of rules and doctrines uh, into the common law. And I hope this causes people to think about some other ways that uh, Roman and canon law could have affected the early common law, um, you know, through through sort of practices or uh, or models of professionalization or things like that. Um, so I hope it opens up some new conversations about that. In terms of um, sort of is is there a is there a takeaway or is there a conversation this could start about um, about modern law? The book, um, in some ways, is is about uh, the legal profession and. Uh, a group of people in the 13th century who started to think about what it means to be a legal professional, to be a person who works with law. I think uh, that's something that could really um, spark conversations, especially with law students, about what it means to be a lawyer, what it means to be a person who who works with law. And I'm not sure that the um, the authors of Bracton they had a very exclusive view of of who counted right who counted as a legal professional they were sort of limiting that to justices and clerks of the royal courts they were leaving a lot of people out but I think that can at least start conversations about what the legal profession is what it is we do um, the kind of uh, meaning we attach to our work with law and I sort of hope that that's something you know that's something that could um, would make its way into, say, you know, professional responsibility classes or something like that. <laughs> well, I'll certainly introduce the idea to my professional responsibility class. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about your excellent book. And I encourage uh, listeners to check it out uh, because it's a really great read. Well, thank you.
and the midwives gave o'er. King Henry was sent for with horseback and speed. For Tabby with Queen Jane in her hour of need. He went to her bedside. How comes this, my flower? I come to ye direct in less time than an hour. King Henry, King Henry, I take you to be. Pray cut my side open and save your baby. Ah, no, said King Henry, that never could be. If I can lose my pretty flower, I'll lose my baby. Queen Jane, turn it over, went into a sound. Her side was cut open and her baby was found. Her baby was christened. The very same day, while hit dear dead mother, a moldering lay. Six men went before her, four men followed on. King Henry stumbled after with his black morning on. Oh, he weeped and he mourned until he was sore. Said the flower of England will flourish no more. And he sat by the river, his head on his hand. Said my Mary England is a sorrowful.